0: seven SAS men lined up in a firing squad on the verge of being shot to death. Hello and welcome to For You The War Is Over, a podcast about Second World War Prisoner of War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave.
1: And me, Tony. And in this episode, well, what do I say? We've seen various different things come up as part of people escaping from camps. In this case, these guys are not in a camp, but they escape whilst standing in front of a firing squad on the verge of being executed. I don't think we're going to see that in any other escape ever.
0: No, I think this is going to be a truly unique episode.
1: It is truly unique. So, we have the story of two gentlemen here. We've got Corporal Serge Vachulik and Corporal Thomas Ginger Jones of the 1st Special Air Service. Now, Vachulik, he was 24 years old. We've got an address in Camberley, but he was a Czech national and joined the British Army in 1941.
0: Yeah, and of course it's not unknown for Czechs, Dutch, Belgians, Poles... French to have made their way over to the United Kingdom following the occupation of their respective countries and to continue fighting. So that's entirely normal in that sense. Absolutely.
1: And our second man is Jones, who was uh, born in Wigan. He was a minor pre war, slightly older than Vitulic, So he was 30 at the time of his capture. But he'd been a keen footballer and amateur boxer as a child before the war. But he had joined up early. He'd already seen action, so he'd been in North Africa and Italy before he came to be in France with Vertulik. So let's have a little look at what these guys were doing in France So let's move to the 5th of July 1944, when both of these men were parachuted into France as part of a group of 12 commandos, and they were dropped just in the sort of south suburbs of Paris, which is a fair way from where the Allies were at the time. So 5th of July, mostly the Allies were still in Normandy, Germans were still occupying Cannes, which was taking a huge amount of efforts to try and liberate, so effectively they are, give or take, 250 kilometres behind enemy lines. And their task for that particular night was, under the command of Captain Pat Garstin, was to damage beyond use German aircraft on French airfields and destroy the airfield ammunition dumps. Now, there were a couple around there. So there's Orly, which is still a main international airport today and Villarush. And Villarush and Orly were both bomber bases for the Luftwaffe and they were being tasked with hitting the Allied supply lines that were coming in. So a fairly reasonable task to go and try and knock out these bombers. And I guess The interesting comment I found was to damage beyond reasonable use, because I guess if they destroyed them, then they just get left because there's nothing you can do with it. If you damage it beyond reasonable use, does that take up more manpower of the Germans to try and fix it or liberate bits and pieces from it when there's already issues going on? So it's an interesting thing that didn't say destroy airplanes, it said damage beyond reasonable use, but certainly destroy the ammunition dumps unfortunately though the germans appeared to be waiting for these men and i think subsequently it's been found that they'd actually been betrayed by locals to the germans so their mission was relatively doomed to failure right from the start so let's look at vatulic's report and he says i landed on the 5th of july 1944 with a stick of 12 sas personnel After three hours, I was captured by the Gestapo. So that's quite interesting. It's not a good start. It's not a good start. Now, the fact that the Gestapo were on hand for these paratroopers arriving is interesting. It's just not armed guards. It's the Gestapo. It says three of our party managed to escape the drop zone, and Corporal Jones and I were taken prisoner amongst a number of others, some of whom were wounded. The wounded were taken to hospital, and the remainder of us were taken to the Gestapo headquarters in the Avenue Foch. I was interrogated on four occasions by a Gestapo officer. He wanted to know our plans, our wireless code, and my true nationality.
0: Yes. Now, that's a very interesting comment to make, because we said earlier he is a Czech national. Yes. However, as part of his cover, for want of a better description, while serving with the SAS, he was fighting under assumed name Mm -hmm. and an assumed identity, including an assumed nationality. So he states here, I've been dropped with a false paybook under the name of Jean Dupontel, a French-Canadian from Quebec. Now that's smart because, first of all, they were, of course, on the Allied side. So perfectly acceptable cover, but equally, because his country was occupied, had they discovered that he was a Czech national, it would have put any family he might have still had in Czechoslovakia at serious risk. Mm -hmm. So there's a couple of reasons for this cover. And being a French-Canadian from Quebec would allow him to speak French and English without it being particularly detectable. So it's, it's a good cover from his perspective. I, I think it's brilliant. But it also indicates why the Gestapo were so desperate to find out true nationality. So he states, "...I was beaten up and slapped during my interrogation. After three days of interrogation, I and the other members of my party were taken to a private hotel and there put into solitary confinement." I broke up my watch and endeavoured unsuccessfully to cut through the bars with the unravelled spring. That's brilliant. Yeah. I later started to dig through the wall and was discovered by the guard who threatened to shoot me and beat me up. I was then put in the same cell as Corporal Jones. For five weeks, we were handcuffed, never taking them off day or night. One day, whilst idly playing with Jones's handcuffs and trying to find a means of opening them, I slipped my unravelled watch spring under the catch and they opened easily. Useful. Very useful. Good trick to learn. Mm-hmm. Having been held by the Gestapo for five weeks or so after being captured on the 5th of July. Now here I'm going to switch to a book called The Regiment by Michael Asher because he picks up okay. on what happened next. On the 8th of August, the guards brought them a pile of ragged civilian clothing and told them to put it on. story was that they were going to be exchanged for German prisoners in Switzerland. Jones was sceptical. He told Vachelik he couldn't see why they needed civvies to be exchanged. Vatulik agreed that the story didn't hang together. One of the guards had told them that the uniforms were being taken away to be washed. So already the Germans are contradicting themselves. Here. Yeah.
1: And we've seen before that even when people have had to, when they've been in like Dulag Luft and they've had to exchange uniforms, they've been given like Polish uniforms
0: or something else whilst theirs have been
1: cleaned. So mm-hmm. again, doesn't really add up, does it? Exactly.
0: Vatulik therefore told Garsten, who was the commanding officer of this raid, that he had a bad feeling about the new move and suggested they make a break for it. However, Garsten, whose wounds hadn't healed, was so weak he could hardly stand up. He therefore said that they should be patient, as he reckoned that they were going to be repatriated, as per the Germans had claimed. The Germans bullied and cajoled them into parting with their uniforms. At all 100 hours the next day, they all donned their ill-fitting and down at the heels civilian clothes and were shoved handcuffed into a waiting truck. The truck joined a convoy of 15 or more other vehicles heading north and among their guards was an English-speaking man named Von Capri. At sunrise, the truck came to a halt and the men were turfed out to find themselves on the edge of a forest in the saw. Jones spotted another truck parked some distance into the trees. Vatulik asked Von Capri in French if they were going to be shot. He replied, yes, of course.
1: Interesting scenario. Yes. Now, not unheard of, because in the last couple of series, we have discussed a number of commando raids, and we've discussed the commando order, but not in any particular depth. The last one we mentioned it in was de Grange. In this series, when we mentioned about one of his colleagues who was later captured having escaped and was then executed. And we touched on it as well with Dean Drummond, But we haven't actually done any sort of detail on this, so I think now is probably a good time to look at why this order was made. So, the commando order was made by Hitler on the 18th of October 1942, and there are about five or six different parts to it. But the main crux of the order was that all Allied commandos encountered in Europe and Africa should be killed immediately without trial. Now, there had been a previous order that had been put out with regards to parachutists in the July of '42, which was that any combatants arriving by parachute, as in combatants, not airmen who had bailed out of aeroplanes, but any combatants found to be arriving by parachute should be handed directly to the Gestapo. So that covers things like SOE as well as commandos landing. But the commando order, specifically for all commandos, comes in on the 18th of October 1942. Now, that's obviously very much against the Geneva Convention, but the Germans claimed that this was justified. And we've mentioned before about Dieppe and Canadians, so I think it's time to tie all this together. So basically, it does stem from the Dieppe raid, as well as the small-scale raiding forces, which we also covered in De Granger. Now, on the Dieppe raid, a Canadian brigadier took operational orders ashore which were then found by the Germans. And in those instructions, there were references to binding prisoners. Now, the Germans claimed that following the Dieppe raid and the rounding up of people, that various bodies of German prisoners were found shot and had their arms and legs bound. Now, the Germans said that this was evidence that commandos arriving on the continent were to tie up prisoners kill any out of hand unarmed captives who might prove incumbents to their operations or who might hinder their operations whilst on the continent so that was the germans first claim for why they should look to break the geneva convention the second one actually comes from the small scale raiding force raid on sark in the channel islands that actually occurred after de grange's raid which was in september so this one was on the third of october carried out by number 12 commando and it was operation basalt which was to reconnoiter the island and take prisoners now this one actually went slightly wrong and in all fairness this is evidence and i can see the germans take on this but five prisoners were captured by the commandos and were bound by the commandos to ease looking after them i guess on the island one of those that was bound began shouting to try and alert other germans and was shot dead by the commandos The others were gagged, effectively using, as it says, grass and other flora and fauna that were around to to stop them shouting. Whilst taking them back to the beach, three of those four captured prisoners escaped. One of those was shot, one of those was stabbed, but one of them got back to the other Germans and was therefore able to report what had happened. So the commandos only actually brought one prisoner back to the UK. But you now have effectively two cases, the first one claimed by the Germans, but the second one evidenced of prisoners who were bound and unable to fight being shot. So the result of that was twofold. So the first one was that the Germans' initial retaliation shackled nearly 1,400 Allied prisoners, many of whom were Canadians who had been captured at Dieppe, and we have mentioned that before. The Canadians retaliated again by actually shackling German prisoners in Canada. And there seems to have been a bit of tour throwing up until the December of that year. But effectively, the Germans were claiming that because commandos were breaking the Geneva Convention, Germany would therefore adopt the same methods against any, quote, sabotage units that they encountered. So that covered SOE resistance and commando operations. So that's what led to the commando orders. Looking into it, it actually took effect quite quickly. So the order came in on the 18th of October, 42. It was first enacted just five days later, 23rd of October, when seven men were shot. There are many cases. I'll go through a couple of them. So Operation Freshman, which is the heavy water plant in Telemark, that was a bit of a disaster. All of the survivors, because obviously that was a glider landing, they crashed, there were lots of injured... All of the survivors of that operation were executed under the commando order within hours of being notified that they were there. There were six more Royal Marines in December of '42. That was particularly nasty. Some of them were wounded and they were actually not all shot, but those ones were uh, actually injected with air into their bloodstream. There are other occasions of lethal injections being given in hospital and things like that. And I think there's a couple of cases of hangings. But then there were seven Navy men in July of '43. 15 US soldiers in Italy, interestingly enough, in March of 44, And under this particular guy. so we're looking at Normandy and post-D-Day, there are actually 34 SAS soldiers in total were executed under the commander order in the Normandy campaign. Lots of these were brought to war crime trials after the war. In total, I found that there were 16 incidents going as late as the 20th of February 1945 of the commander order being carried out. And that relates to 186 individual murders that were tried for. But the number would have been higher. It would have been considerably higher. Because there, there's quite a few that were done in just ones and twos. But these are the big ones that actually reached the war trial. So that's generally the commander order and why the Germans felt that this was a necessary move to take.
0: No, that's useful. This thing gives us the context as to why it was the Gestapo who was waiting for them, put straight into Gestapo hands, interrogated by the Gestapo, and ultimately why what we have here is a group of SAS soldiers who have just been told by their Gestapo guard that... They will be shot.
1: And they're now not in uniform as well, so any witnesses to this are not going to be potentially reporting the execution of military personnel.
0: Exactly. It's the murder
1: of people dressed in civilian clothing.
0: So returning to vachelik's report and to recap, he states, At 0100 hours on the 9th of August, we were put in the truck. Now, by this stage, two of those who were captured had died of their wounds. So we started off with 12, as we said. Three managed to escape mm-hmm. at the time of the raid. And so we were never captured and then two more have since died of their wounds. So we're now down to seven of the original 12. Yeah. So the seven were put into a truck at all 100 hours on the 9th of August. We were accompanied by a convoy of about 20 cars and heading north they eventually stopped in the forest in the Somme. We were taken out of the truck, led into an open space and lined up. Here we faced a squad of five men, three Gestapo officers, one civilian and one SS sergeant all armed with Sten guns. The sentence was then read out to us and we were found guilty of working with the terrorists and were condemned to be shot to death. So what we have here is seven SAS men lined up in a firing squad on the verge of being shot to death. Yes.
1: You would have thought very little option in any way out here. Yes.
0: They're cornered. Yes. Handcuffed.
1: With seconds to live.
0: So turning to an article that was written in October 2020 by Lord Ashcroft about Vatulik and Jones, in which he goes into a lot more detail about the actual escape itself using some of his post-war research. Mm -hmm. He states, "...Vatulik had been weakened by torture and a lack of food. He was also so scared that his knees began to tremble and he half fell to the ground, but the butts of several SS rifles propelled him forward." As he was being lined up to be shot, his thoughts turned to his younger brother, Antoine, whom he had not seen for five years, but who he knew was fighting with the French resistance. Then, as he listened to the bird song, he thought of his parents who lived in a tiny house in Brittany. God help me, he whispered under his breath. I'm too young. I don't want to be shot down like a dog under these trees. As the men prepared to be executed, he glanced at his best friend, Corporal Thomas Ginger Jones, short and stoggy, who was the last man in the line. An SS captain read out a statement, first in German, before one of his sergeants translated it into English. Having been tried and found guilty before a court-martial of collaborating with French terrorists and in this way endangering the security of the German army, you have been sentenced to death by shooting. So I mentioned earlier that he had worked out how to get out of his handcuffs. Yes. And this was to prove crucial. Because, and returning to the article, moments earlier, he had managed to work his right hand free from the handcuffs but kept his arms in front of him to pretend that they were still restricted. As the group of SS soldiers raised their weapons to fire, he let out a roar like a wild beast and rushed forward, breaking through a gap between one of the German officers and the civilian who was witnessing the execution. That's incredible.
1: Running towards a your firing, firing squad. squad.
0: In order to escape. So returning to Vitulic's report, he states that I stumbled and fell whilst the bullets passed overhead. I then got back up and ran like mad and after some time came to a farm where I was taken in and sheltered for the night. Now again, the article goes into a bit more detail on this. Having managed to get away and into the forest, he gets to the other edge of the forest and came to a thick hedge. He could hear the Germans were on his heels and so he launched himself, arms first through the top of the hedge, briefly remembering what he'd been taught at his commando training course in Inverness in Scotland. Mm -hmm. Landing with a roll forwards, he glanced at a rather surprised horse standing close by, picked himself up and once again ran for his life towards another wood. So what we have now over and above a very surprised horse is Vatulik. On the run from a firing squad, having managed to get away from the Germans, who were, of course, chasing him, he's now alone in the French countryside, barely a couple of months after the D-Day landings, where things are red hot, because mm. he is also in northern France. Yeah, He's also dressed in civilian clothing and badly injured with a limp from a swollen right ankle where he had injured himself while making his escape. Better than the alternative. Far better. But still
1: in a precarious situation. Yeah, and also with a pair of handcuffs hanging off of one wrist,
0: which would have attracted attention should he be met by somebody else. Exactly. So out of desperation, he made his way to a nearby village in the hope of finding some civilians who would take pity on him and not turn him over to the Germans. Now, as he stated in his report, he made his way to a farm where he was taken in and sheltered. And from there, he made contact with the local butcher, whose cousin was in the resistance. Ah, useful. Very useful. So having made contact with helpers and been introduced to the local resistance, it's worthwhile going back to see what happened to the others. Yes. Specifically Jones. Absolutely. So Jones states that in the commotion caused by Vachalik's escape, He had raced away from his position at the end of the line before tripping and falling on a route. Bullets hit the ground around where I was lying. I was afraid to move. I knew that my only chance now was to pretend to be dead. I heard someone come up to me and my heart almost stopped beating. I was astonished at still being alive. Jones, having pretended to be dead and been checked by a Gestapo officer, then had to lie dead until the Gestapo firing squad had finished its work. Mm. Returning to the regiment by Asher, Jones waited until they were all out of sight, then lifted his head to scope the area. He saw five bloody corpses and realised suddenly how the scene might be construed. Five dead Britons in civilian clothes shot in the back as if trying to escape. They had been tricked into forsaking their uniforms so that they could be shot as absconding spies. Jones didn't linger. He jumped over a fence and vanished into the forest, emerging into a cornfield where he went to ground. So returning to Jones's report, he states, I then ran as fast as possible through the woods. After four or five miles, I came to some farmhouses where I asked a civilian for help. He put me in touch with the resistance who took me to a nearby forest. I stayed there for one week. So Vagilik, who, as we know, has made contact with the resistance, is at this time currently recovering. And while his ankle is healing, he's told by his friends in the resistance that three miles away, there are villagers who have found a man who doesn't speak any French but was asking for help. At first, he thought this was a trap, but agreed to accompany the Frenchman to see the stranger. The two men slipped into a house and listened to the stranger talking in English. The voice coming from the kitchen was unmistakable. It was Ginger Jones, so he entered the room. The two friends stared at each other as if they'd both seen a ghost. They then shook hands and hugged each other warmly. So, having both managed to make their escape from a firing squad seconds from death, miraculously, Jones and Vatuluk have now managed to come back together and join up again through their connections in the Resistance. However, as if that wasn't enough, their adventures were not to end there. No, No, they weren't. So, having made contact with the Resistance, once they both recovered... Vatulik states, From the 10th of August to the 1st of September, I helped the resistance. I taught about 120 men how to use brain guns, bazookas, grenades and other arms. A useful man to know. They were there for a month and, returning to Ashcroft's article, he states, Their first mission was to ambush a German staff car that the resistance had observed passing by each day and which never had a motorcycle escort. Five men, including an SS colonel, were captured. They were ordered to dig their own graves and later shot. On another occasion, they found six enemy soldiers beating up a young Frenchman, dragging the boy's mother by her hair and stealing their horses. With another resistance fighter, he shot the SS men dead. So by this point in the war, the Germans are starting to retreat. The advance through Normandy towards pretty much where Vatulik and Jones are located... That's right. ...is starting to gain momentum. And so it wasn't long before they would likely be able to link up with the Allied forces. And in fact, Vachulik's report states... At midday on the 1st of September, my section held a position for three hours against a party of 40 German paratroops. I myself killed one German paratrooper and wounded several others. And at three o'clock that day, Allied troops arrived in our area and liberated the time we were in. Because of my knowledge of firearms and methods of warfare, I became temporary chief of the resistance in our area for the next five days. And on the sixth of September, Jones and myself were taken by car to Aramanch and returned to the UK by boat on the seventh of September. Now, there's a little bit more detail than that because they actually cross the Channel in one of those flat-bottomed invasion—they do boats, <laughs> which, which is... sounds horrendous. <laughs> it does the worst possible way to travel. I hope it was smooth. across the Channel. <laughs> God,
1: but they're bearing in mind what they've faced in the last couple of months. That's probably, whilst still dicey, is probably the least of their worries. They're going home.
0: Exactly, and they returned to New Haven on the 7th of September 1944.
1: So, yeah, so both men survived that ordeal and indeed survived the war. They actually ended up giving evidence at the various war crime trials that came up, particularly one in 1947, which involved their would-be firing squad. Now you found a mention of the German that came to check on Jones. Yes,
0: you? so in Asher's book, The Regiment, which is about the SAS, he states that Schnur, who was presumably the Gestapo officer who had checked on Jones's body, when he returned half an hour later and found Jones' body had gone, he had a fit of hysterics. He was perfectly aware that he was contravening the Geneva Convention and might one day be executed as a war criminal. The last thing he needed was a living survivor.
1: Absolutely and, you know, as I covered when we were talking about the commando order earlier the Germans had ordered this and that had to be passed on by the commanding officers which was used as a lot of the defense in these trials however the Geneva Convention was quite clear and the courts had no sympathy when it came to the fact that uh, people were arguing they were following orders so uh, the result of that particular war crimes trial two of those firing squad were imprisoned, all were found guilty the other four were hung as a result of uh, those actions that took place that day so the, your Gestapo officer was right to feel hysterical over what had happened. Yes, yeah, so
0: I must admit I have limited sympathy
1: Indeed. Vatulic did find his way back to his Czechoslovak family and indeed his family in France post-war as did Jones, who actually went back to his pre-war occupation as being a minor up in Wigan. The two did meet regularly and they stayed firm friends I mean obviously they'd, they'd faced death together that one particular point.
0: Absolutely, because we often hear about people talking about brothers in arms, band of brothers, as they serve together and face death together during that service in the army or or any of the other services. But I think there's almost an even greater intensity in the sense that they didn't just face death together in the traditional sense of on a front. But they face death together in a firing squad. That's an even greater level of intensity to me.
1: Anyway. Oh, absolutely. And actually, Patulik did record his story, didn't he, in a
0: book? He did, yes. Yeah. So he wrote a book in 1954. The English version is called Air Commando. The French version is called Umberry Rouge, which is, of course, the red berry. And it is so rare, we actually cannot find a copy of it.
1: That's right, because it would fill in some questions, because we mentioned at the start that he had been a a law student, and we think, because we found some references, but obviously we have to try and look into this as much as possible and the book would give us the answers if we could find it but we, we believe he was a law student in France, yes, either just before the war broke out or at the time of war breaking out and that there's mention of him at Dunkirk so potentially he might have been a Czechoslovak refugee from France escaping with the British Expeditionary Forces back. He certainly wasn't in the service at the time but we would love to find a copy of that but it is so rare as you say Dave, we can't find a copy anywhere so if anyone has a copy <laughs> we'd love to have a read because it would answer a lot of these questions but yes these two men did find themselves friends for the rest of their lives now unfortunately it was jones who passed away first so he was admitted to hospital with pneumonia in september 1990 and interestingly when the doctor informed him that he had to have his leg amputated above the knee He actually asked to keep the leg as a way of remembering the nine goals he once scored in a football match using it, and he was going to keep it in a box. But sadly, Jones didn't leave hospital. He died there on the 6th of December, 1919. Now, as it seems to happen with this, the SAS had heard that Jones has passed away as one of their ex-brothers and contacted the family and said, is there anything that the family wanted? And they said, well, absolutely. You know, he'd been good friends with Vatulik all of these years. Could the SAS get the message to Vatulik that Jones had passed away? A couple of days later, the message came back that Vatulik too had passed away the very next day following when Jones had passed away. So Jones passed away on the 6th of December and Vatulik passed away on the 7th of December. So two men who faced death together and were then lifelong friends died within 24 hours of each other in the 1990s.
0: An absolutely incredible coincidence, following an incredible life and an incredible escape. Absolutely.
1: Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or indeed
0: any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching... At FYTWIO. Or if you want to send us a more long form message, you can email
1: us at FYTWIO podcast at gmail.com.